0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: And now, from the Wharton Sports Business Summit at the University of Pennsylvania, a full day of keynotes, panels, workshops, and research presentations, looking at the economics of the sports industry. This is a Business Radio special presentation. Here's your host, Eric Bradlow.
0: Welcome to the Wharton Sports Business Summit brought to you by SiriusXM Business Radio Channel 132. I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. For those of you that are regular listeners, I'm also the co-host of Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM 132. I'll be hosting the first hour of this show uh, of a special two-hour program before handing it over to my colleague and co-host on Wharton Moneyball, Cade Massey. Over the next two hours, we're going to be talking with leaders from the world of sports, including my first guest, Jeff Luno, from the Houston Astros. We'll be talking to people from the New York Yankees, Fox Networks, NFL, Major League Baseball, and more. It is now my honor to welcome our first guest, Jeff Luno. Jeff, for those of you that don't know, it'd be hard not to know, given his prominence in the world of sports and analytics now, is the general manager and president of baseball operations. And I must admit, I have to say it, for the 2017 winning (laughs) World Series Houston Astros. Jeff, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks Eric, it's a pleasure to be on this program and it's really fun to be back here on campus. Yeah, as we just
0: discussed beforehand, it's really will be the first question I'll ask you. Um, Turns out we were both here as undergrads at the same time. You were an M&T student, which means, for those of the people that don't know, that means Jeff has an undergraduate degree both from the engineering school and from the Wharton School. Um, Talk to us about your business
1: background and how in some sense that's influenced your career. Well, baseball is a business, and I think it wasn't really until the late 90s, 2000 era that owners began to recognize that the people making the big decisions on the baseball side were actually making business decisions but using baseball information to do it. And I think that was the beginning of the Moneyball era and the beginning of people coming into baseball that had different set of experiences. You know, I played junior varsity baseball in high school. That was as far as my playing career went. I did play fantasy baseball for about 10 to 15 years and was pretty good at it, uh, and was always interested in the industry, but I didn't think there'd be a chance for me to get in. But my business background, having gone to Wharton, having spent time in other industries, really was attractive to the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals when he brought me in, because he was looking for just a different way of thinking about problem solving on the baseball side, and that's how I got my start.
0: Now what's interesting that you brought up is that you started on the baseball side. So could you talk to our listeners here about Obviously, the way most people think about analytics and baseball right now is on the baseball side. So, why don't we talk about that first? Right. And then, as you know, it's now, I don't even call it bleeding over because it would yeah. disrespect it. It's now a huge part on the ticket sales no side doubt. and et cetera. So, let's start with the, the baseball side. How did you get started in that? Like, how did you go from, we just discussed you were a mechanical engineer yeah. in finance. How do you go from that to doing analytics and baseball?
1: I think it's the uh, foresight of Bill DeWitt Jr., the owner of the Cardinals, in 2003, he recognized, uh, he read the book Moneyball like we all did, and said, hey, if the Oakland A's are able to gain an advantage by looking at information a different way, uh, my front office doesn't have those capabilities. Because like so many front offices, it was traditional baseball people that had grown up in the game, had coached, had managed, had uh, been in scouts, etc. And all of a sudden, um, this new capability was starting to emerge. So for me, having a technology background, having done a couple of startups, having been a management consultant for six years, those were things that were attractive to Bill DeWitt because he knew I would be able to think about solving problems in a unique and different way. And that's, that's why I got my start. And I can tell you today, there's a lot of people uh, behind me that, that look, look a lot like me in terms of diverse backgrounds. So let's talk about that, because we're here today at the Wharton School at a
0: sports business summit. I see all of our wonderful students dressed up in suits, not their normal dress, but yeah. I see that today. Um, <laughs> What kind of backgrounds are you seeing people coming into, let's say, whether it's at Houston Astros, et cetera, looking for sports? I can imagine someone that's proficient. Statistics might help. Computer science might help. But I'm sure it must be a diverse set of backgrounds. What would you even recommend? Someone
1: that wants to follow your path. What should they study? It's a good question. I get it all the time. And I think... You should study something that if you don't end up getting a job in baseball or sports, you can still have a successful career. So anything on the analytics side, computer, modeling, statistics, math, uh, but even economics, business. We have uh, a few people in our front office that are essentially just generalists. They're really smart people that have a business background, but we have a lot more, and this is increasing, people with very specific skills, whether it's machine learning or robotics or physics. There's very specific skills that we're looking for these days because we have a strategy on how we're going to develop our technology and our analytics, and generally speaking, we go deep, so we need people with specific skills. How big an organization, I mean,
0: without giving away any secret sauce or the payroll of the Houston Astros on this, How big an analytics group is there? Because I remember in the old days, it used to be, well, well, there'd be two or three people doing it. I imagine I'm going to be able to multiply this by at least 10, but how big are we talking about here? So
1: when I got to the Cardinals, I hired one person full-time, and then this was 2004-05. And then I remember when I was getting ready to hire my second person, I had a hard time justifying that it was a a full-time job. Maybe it needed to be a part-time job, because I I thought we needed to build a model, but after we built it, it would be done, and, and I wouldn't have enough work for them to do. Uh, I'd say right now the Cardinals probably have 13 to 14 full-time analysts, technology people. Uh, The Astros have something around 15, 16, 17. Most clubs have over 10. Some have over 20. So the the number has grown exponentially of, we call them analysts, but there are lots of different people from different walks of life. And this is not only happening on the uh, analyst side, but also the medical, sports medicine side. Um, we now have uh, a lot of people involved with different backgrounds on the sports medicine side, uh, psychology, et cetera. So there's a lot of need for different disciplines in baseball today. So let me cycle through from some of that doesn't work full time in baseball, but has been
0: there's probably been, well, maybe beyond you, more, more of a baseball junkie than me. Ever since I was a kid, I followed everything having to do with baseball analytics. So which let me cycle through some parts of the baseball business and you tell me sure. maybe how analytics has had an impact. Right. Why don't we start with the basic part, training. How, does the, how do the Houston Astros use data and analytics to help uh, athletes just perform better and get better strength right. training, better health, less likely to be injured? How right. do you, let's just start, start with that.
1: Well first, we recognized years back that there's a huge connection between physical capabilities and the skills needed for baseball. and. In the past, there was a little bit of a wall between the skill coaches and the strength and conditioning and the trainers, but we've broken those walls down, and now we work collaboratively across all those areas because if you're trying to get a guy to change his swing and you tell him what he needs to do to change it, he may not be physically able to do it because he needs to do something different in his training. And so now we have all of our strength and conditioning coaches know what skills our players are trying to work on and they work collaboratively with the skill coaches to try and figure out how to do it, and that's been a huge change, not only for us, but for everybody in the industry.
0: Now, let me I, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to seem strange, but there's a purpose. Before you were the president of Baseball Operations, how did you make that integration happen? Was it through the sheer will of your knowledge? Was right. it through just your so your soft EQ skills to convince people? I mean, now, you, I hate to say it, you can just order people. Like, right. you guys will <laughs> integrate. But how did you do it prior to that?
1: Well, when I was in St. Louis, uh, everything had to be done using influence because I wasn't in charge of all the multiple departments. So, but But people do... Respond when you have compelling arguments and you show them evidence and you try things out. So St. Louis made great strides Once I got to Houston, it was different because I was in charge and I got to hire the people and shape the departments but it, We really we sit down every summer in August and we go through What is the world going to look like five years from now across every area of baseball? And then we think to ourselves where are we and how are we position today? and Do we need to restructure do we need to add people do we need to change job roles We've done that every year for the past three years, four years, really. And every summer we make some sort of changes to prepare for the future. And it could be structural, it could be people, it could be bigger investments in technology, et cetera. But it all starts with the planning part of it. So we've talked
0: about training. Let's talk about the next part, player development. So how do you guys broadly use analytics to try to get the most out of players? Like even whether it's from the minor leagues, uh, you know, whether it's A-ball, double AA, AAA, or even in the major leagues, how do you use it for player development?
1: Today, we have so much interesting technology that we can identify what a pitch, how a pitch will perform in the, in the major leagues or how a particular swing will perform in the major leagues. So we can now benchmark our 16-year-old Dominican players and our 18-year-old high school drafted players and our 22-year-old college players with their, what they're doing compared to how well that skill is likely to play in the big leagues. So for every player, we have a plan. And here's what you need to do. Here's the third pitch you need to develop. Here's what you need to do to your fastball shape in order for it to be more successful. So they have very particular goals. And then the question is, how do you work on those goals? And you have to get constant feedback. And it's not just about playing games. It's also about their side sessions, uh, throwing in front of the machines, taking swings in front of the cameras, and constantly refining. But the, the good thing is, with all the technology, we have metrics for everything. And there are goals for every player. And if they accomplish those goals, they're going to be good big league players. Has there been any challenge in getting buy-in from the players about this? A ton. A ton. And over time, it's dissipated in large part because so many of our players now go to these great college programs and they're using the technology there, so they're used to it. Um, In fact, for a while, the challenge we had was that the players were ahead of the coaches. We were trying to get the coaches to use and think about the technology and the analytics and the players were a receptive audience but the coaches were sort of blocking some of that that's changed now uh, but there is uh, a challenge because nobody likes to do things differently than the way they've always done them and if you grew up and the shortstop was always to your right if you're a right-handed pitcher behind you and all of a sudden a ball goes through there and it's a hit you're gonna you're gonna glare at somebody uh, even though the one that got hit right behind you gets picked up that used to be a single so um change is difficult but i think It's now become the new norm in baseball that every year there's going to be some new things, like this year the opener that Tampa started and everybody started to copy, and I have a feeling it's here to stay, and there's going to be certain clubs that are going to be using that going forward.
0: We talked about that strategy on Wharton Moneyball quite a bit. So let me now, let's move to something you actually have just led into, which is the on-field. You were obviously talking about the shift, but can you talk about what you think both on-field
1: and during the game analytics has had the biggest impact on? it's always had an impact. And even if you go back to the Branch Ricky days, you know, when to hit and run, when to steal, uh, all, all the, you know, when to bring the infield in. And, and in the last few years, how to position the infielders and now the outfielders. And I think, you know, we're all playing the probabilities. You look at a particular hitter and how he tends to put the ball in play and you want to position your defense to grab it. Um, you also look at the, the game state. If you have a a runner at first with no out versus a runner at second with one out, which is a better chance for you to score runs in that inning. And how important is that run to win the game? And so there's a lot of nuance that goes into it. But those rules of thumb if, that we like to call them about when the manager should do certain things, um, those have been pretty well developed really since the 50s and 60s. They've changed a little bit because the run environment's changed and the stadiums have changed. and uh, But generally speaking, they're there now some managers use it some managers don't and uh in in some cases there's good reasons why they don't they know that a particular player isn't feeling great or their hamstrings hurting and they're not gonna be able to be as fast they know the catcher's not throwing as well uh different things like that and and we give our manager all the leeway to make those decisions but we want we make sure that he has the information he knows the probabilities it's kind of like playing blackjack if you if you don't know the perfect odds strategy you're going to make mistakes, and that's what
0: we try and avoid. So you've actually talked about the next part I was going to ask you about. Do you actually, and I don't mean this in a negative way, I mean in a constructive way, do you score your managers? We've talked a lot on Wharton Moneyball, like what makes a good manager and how much value does the manager have? Yeah. Do you actually go back, you know, like when you're in the offseason, and say, here's a game where you did three things that didn't follow exactly what the probabilities are. There may have been
1: a good reason. Right. Do you actually score your coaches and managers? We do, but we have to recognize that the in-game tactical decisions are one component of Many components of a successful manager, and so you have to put it in context. Um, also, you have to realize that the, the absolutely the worst time to go down and talk to your manager about an in-game decision is right after the game. So, really, uh, for us, we look at it on a monthly basis, and we dialogue with our manager. and He's very open-minded; he wants to learn. So we, you know, we talked to him about these. There were five situations this year where you went again. You know, last month where you went against the odds. Um, and he has always a reason, and he tells us. And sometimes we have to take that reason and try and bake it back into the models to, to improve it. Sometimes he just made a judgment call, and it either worked or it didn't. But we have that conversation, and it's really healthy for both sides. Actually, your last point is one I was going to ask you about, too, so it's another interesting one.
0: Models currently always have to be updated. Right. How, do, how does the human side add to your models? Like, yeah. how, like if a manager sees something, you know, we talk about these as combining managerial data with the hard data. Right. How
1: do you guys think about that? Right. Well, you try and figure out, is it real, first of all, um, or are they double counting something that's already in the model? And if it is real and the model hasn't captured it, you try and figure out. So he may say the guy didn't feel well, so that, that's more, more of a health issue. How do you model in how good the guy is feeling in terms of how quickly, how, how much he's going to be able to steal that base, for example? And there are ways to try and do that systematically and, and bake it in there. Uh, But it's it's part art, part science. It's never gonna get to the point where you you look at the model and you just follow it blindly because there there are factors that we're never gonna be able to, to, to bake in there. That being said, we don't stop trying to improve the models every single year. And the way you do that is you work collaboratively with the decision makers and you try and get them to articulate as best they can why they deviated, and and then talk about whether or not that's a variable that you can start to model.
0: I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing statistics here at the Wharton School, as well as host of Wharton Money Bowl on Wednesday mornings here on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is a Business Radio special presentation from the Wharton Sports Business Summit, and we're currently talking with Jeff Luno, general manager and president of baseball operations for the Houston Astros. I'm going to ask you what I think is both a naive, but I hope a sophisticated question at the same time. Is there... Could I be a manager right now and sit in the dugout with a laptop? Am I al- First, am I allowed to have a laptop there? And if not, do you ever see a
1: day where there is? You're allowed to have an iPad, and you can load it up before the game with whatever you want. But during the game, you cannot be going to the Internet or looking at live video or updating it. So our iPads for our manager and our coaches have a lot of information in there, and there's a lot of scenarios where they can look at and, and get some guidance. So that, that exists whether or not it'll be real time down the road i don't know this whole notion of sign stealing and trying to gain an edge and and video in the stadium and all of that um, you know we're trying to uh, technology sort of getting out in front um and there's always going to be ways to take advantage of technology to make real-time decisions and i think mlb is trying to limit that um, so that it's a level playing field so i i only have time for one more question but it's how do you reflect
0: back on the 2018 season meaning you won over 100 games. Right. By everybody's measure, that's a successful season. Yeah. It was the second most in baseball, I believe, after the Red Sox. A little more, a few more than my Yankees. Yeah. But, it, you, you, but, of course, you know, the Red Sox beat us. They beat, when I say us, the Yankees, right. they beat the Ashes. Right. How do you think about the season? And then how do you think about using what you've learned for 2019?
1: Well, first, I think we had a better team in 2018 than we had in 2017. And so. all the advanced Sabre metrics right. suggest that as well. And we were favored to win the World Series from the very beginning, and, and I think even now we're favored to win next year. So uh, on paper, we had a great team. But when, once you get to the postseason, anything can happen. A lot of things do happen. Um, evidence of how we were sort of operating on fumes at the end, within 12 hours of us being eliminated, Jose Altive was having surgery. Uh, Carlos Correa was shut down. Lance McCullers, we found, you know, we we now know he was pitching through a, an elbow injury, and he had Tommy John. So, our guys were giving it their best effort. We were doing everything we could. We left it all out there. We had some bad calls go against us and some bad luck, but you know, at the end of the day, credit goes to the Ross and Red Sox. They steamrolled through the playoffs. They deserve the championship, and I hope that's us next year.
0: Well, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. This was Jeff Luno. Uh,
1: Jeff is general manager and
0: president of baseball operations for the, I'll say, 2017, as much as it pains me, (laughs) 2017 world champion, Houston Astros. Thank you for joining us here on our business radio special. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.
1: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on
0: iTunes and Google Play.